In the heart of a small pine forest in north-central Florida, there is the shadow of a train track. A train track that used to be. Now it's empty, the path carved by the track still remaining. It's almost inconspicuous. You drive along the main road and, parting through the golden brush in the midst of this pine forest, a thin line splits the trees. You can imagine a small train chugging through, the laborers riding on its back, the trees passing by as they send their wares out from the heart of this forest, but now... It's quiet. Birds drift lazily around in the early morning sunlight when I visited gave the entire forest a golden glow, reflecting off of the dazzling tawny grass that made up the floor of these woods. I'm in the Mike Race Gold Head Branch State Park outside of Keystone Heights. That name, Mike Race, is actually spelled R-O-E-S-S -S, and is the name of the family that donated much of the land for this park to be formed. Most state parks don't have names up front, usually just the description of the park itself or some chirpy title for you to pay attention, but this is not like most state parks. This state park is one of the first in Florida. While there were other parks formed that would eventually become part of the Florida State Park system, Goldhead Branch is one of the earliest in that it was founded the same year as the state park system itself, 1935. Another one of the earliest state parks is Terea State Park, which we visited just last week. Also, Fort Clinch State Park, which we visited a few years ago while talking about the shape of Florida up in the northeast corner of the state. It was bought in 1935, though not opened until 1938. Similarly, Goldhead Branch didn't open proper to the public until April 15, 1939, a date that was memorialized in the dedication of a flagpole donated by the Florida Department of Veterans of Foreign Wars. According to literature about the park, 3,000 people arrived to the opening of the Goldhead Branch State Park and celebrated its new place in the Florida ecosystem. It had been worked on for years by the Civilian Conservation Corps, a group created by President Franklin D. Roosevelt to give unemployed men work opportunities. Many structures built by the CCC still stand. In fact, all three state parks we visited this month, Devil's Millhopper, Terea, and Goldhead Branch, all have or had work done by the CCC. Goldhead Branch perhaps has the most of the three parks mentioned, with several pavilions still standing built by these men, as well as some cabins that visitors can actually spend a few nights in overlooking the water in this park. Some of them were built by the CCC. But long before the CCC developed this park, this forest was marked by human influence. That haunting, empty train line that once traversed the golden grasses of the pine forests here at Goldhead, that is an indication of the work that was once done here. The presence of this train line opens the conversation to a much different chapter in this region's history, into our state's history, and a much darker chapter at that. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is our third spring break trip of March. We're going to be taking a trip to a turpentine forest, where pine trees still bear the scars of an industry now long forgotten. While the state park we are visiting is beautiful and charming, its history invokes memory of a tragedy lost to time that impacted Florida's justice system one century ago exactly. This week, we're diving into the unusual substance of turpentine and the fascinating injustices that surrounded its farming. Before we go into it, in a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking about a pretty serious thing that happened at a turpentine farm here in Florida. I'm not going to go too deep into the details of it, but a pretty violent act was committed, and uh, it was a 
pretty serious injustice done by the state of Florida. I'll give you a warning when we approach that specific section, but I promise it's not super graphic. I just wanted to warn you if, if stories of this type of, of injustice is particularly upsetting to you. If you were not interested in hearing that story, just listen for a couple more minutes, and when it comes time to talk about the tough part of this story, feel free to step aside, or if you are ready for it, we will go through from there. But until then, let's talk a little bit more about this beautiful state park, which has nothing necessarily to do with the tragedy that we'll be talking about shortly. Let's take a step into the Mike Race Goldhead Branch State Park. Alongside the beautiful golden grass that fills its fields, you'll see signs pointing you in directions of many other types of ecosystems to explore here within the boundaries. For example, not too far along the main road after you enter, a sign indicates a ravine below. If you descend several flights of concrete stairs that wind along a hillside, the quiet open pine forest above turns into a Florida rainforest below. Down here, a ravine has carved into the topography of Florida's natural structure, and here at the bottom of the ravine there is a beautiful flowing river of fresh water coming from the aquifer. Around it, the plants are extraordinarily lush and green, there's spiders making webs amongst the trees, ferns and palms and vines cover the side of the ravine, and as you get closer, the air gets thicker, the sky gets further away, and you feel like you're in a whole other world. Ascend the stairs, you're back in the quiet, dry forest, but down here, you're in a green underworld. The boardwalk down here takes you directly to the source, and you can see where the water comes from the ground, where it pours out from the aquifer, forming this river of crystal clear water. The trail when we visited was closed the other direction. Necessary controlled burns were happening all over the park in order to deal with the dead brush to keep the ecosystem nice and healthy. It's good, as you know, to burn in forests, to help them stay fresh and healthy. That That's what different organizations and, and different parts of the state government does to keep the forests nice and ready to uh, deal with the various other ecosystem factors that they have to deal with. The only downside is that some parts of the park were closed when we went to visit. Back up top from the ravine, there's even more to see, including lakes that are being restored and marshland near these beautiful campgrounds. The park was buzzing with people camping, having barbecues outside of their RVs, playing in the grass, and enjoying the brisk springtime weather. On another side of the park, some folks were even playing in a lake. There are many lakes here, but the main ones are named Big Lake Johnson and Little Lake Johnson. They're sort of sibling lakes right next to each other. I mentioned earlier that there's these cabins. Each cabin is named for a different type of tree. There's maybe a dozen or so of them right along the water and there you can rent them out and spend the night uh, it seems like such a wonderful way to spend a weekend just out in the quiet of these woods it was uh it's very tempting it's so beautiful out in this part there's a, even a bat box where even in broad daylight we could hear the birds inside of the bat box just chittering away within it was just beautiful out there we, we spent a long time trying to determine the types of trees around us the types of plants on the ground it is quite a lush ecosystem for a park that i had never even heard of Everyone here on the fine Sunday morning that we spent within the park was enjoying the blue skies, the wide open pine forests, and the solitude that comes with a state park that not many people seem to know about. But for as beautiful as this park is, there is an instructional sign on the side of the road that caught our attention. It had two big chunks of tree trunk next to it, not actual living trees, just, just the sides of dead ones, with slash marks along the side to indicate human influence. The sign behind glass reads, what's a cat face? Naturally, I was curious. A very weathered piece of paper behind the glass read the following, quote, Today many pine trees in the south bear the scars of the turpentine industry. This scar is called a cat face. The cat face in this exhibit demonstrates the cup and gutter method of collecting turpentine. 
end quote. So what would be done is they would put this sort of V shape. Think of how a V has a point at the bottom. Now imagine a V that's a little bit wider, sort of a wider angle, right? So what they would do is they would slash into this tree and then they would uh, use this, this hack system to cut into the bark, basically removing sort of the first layer of the tree. And then this oily substance would come out and they would put these gutters, like literally like rain gutters on the side of your house. And that would drain the oil out from underneath. It would, they would sort of shove it up and then it would leave these these this this little v-shaped scar into the side of the tree now they're called cat faces because they look like uh, you know cat ears they you know cats have pointy ears and they sort of stick up on the sides there that's kind of what these look like it, it made the shape of a cat's head so using these tools the hack and the gutter it would drain away the liquid from inside of this tree and they would just keep going up and and, and removing the uh, turpentine from inside these pine trees that that's found inside of pine trees trees with these scars still exist in forests today and if you look closely at pine trees within these forests, including longleaf pines, like the ones that are present here at the Goldhead Branch State Park, you can see these V-shaped slashes across the trunks of the pine trees where, long ago, turpentine was pulled from their woody skin. So, what is turpentine? You may have heard the word before and never knew what it actually was. I had no idea what it was. It's a very interesting substance, but what is it? Well, Turpentine comes from pine trees, and the liquid extracted actually needs to go through a process to become the product known as oil of turpentine. When that final product is made, it is, quote, colorless, oily, odorous, flammable, water immiscible, end quote. Water immiscible means that it won't mix with water. You know when you have a, 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 a container of some kind and has water and oil inside of it, and the oil does not mix with the water, they separate within the container? That is the same with uh, turpentine. It just doesn't mix, so they would sit on top of of each other inside of a container. Turpentine is the sort of product that is used in a lot of different fields. It's used commonly in painting, sometimes as paint thinner or as a means to clean paintbrushes or, or remove paint from things, but it's also used in, quote, the synthesis of resins, insecticides, oil additives, and synthetic pine oil and camphor, end quote. During the 19th century, it was sometimes used as the oil in lanterns, but it produced such a strong stench that that, that was uncommon. There was a time where turpentine was mixed with gin, which sounds awful to taste. It's been used in medicine, it's been used in varnishing furniture, it's basically a solvent. So it has many, many uses and can mix with other chemicals to make other things. And farming it in the decades at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s was a massive industry here in Florida due to our huge population of pine forests. We have a ton of pine trees naturally occurring here in Florida, so there was naturally a lot of areas where turpentine could be farmed. In an industrial age as that period was, chemicals like this had so many uses and there was so much money to be made in the bark of our native pine trees. So that empty train line here used to carry turpentine and other products such as timber and citrus out of the forest. It ran from 1883 to 1899 and was part of a track that ran from Green Cove to Melrose. That's all the way from Jacksonville, all the way over here to Melrose, not far from Gainesville. When the Great Freeze came in the winter of 1894 and 1895, the train line nearly fell away. It lasted a few more years, nearly until the turn of the century carrying lumber, but that wasn't enough to keep it afloat, and now only trace evidence of it can be found in this park. It feels like that's a recurring theme in the turpentine industry. In my five years of writing this show, you see turpentine being mentioned all over in towns that have fallen away or in forests that still bear the impact of its industry. It's almost a phantom in Florida's history, a thing that appears occasionally only to fade away, leaving almost no impact behind. But the turpentine industry was a beast 
In my research and understanding more of the turpentine industry here in Florida, I discovered a story, one caused by and focused on the turpentine industry, that eventually led to a fundamental change in the way Florida treated prisoners exactly one century ago in 1923. Our story, while focused on the turpentine industry that did impact the Goldhead Branch State Park, does not take place here in Keystone Heights. Keystone Heights has nothing to do with the story I'm about to tell you other than the fact that both of these areas were impacted by the turpentine industry. Now, this story, the story I'm about to tell you, begins on a train in Tallahassee. Here's where the story gets a little dark, so stay with me. I'd like to introduce you to a figure in Florida history who left a resounding impact on our state just before the Great Depression. His name was Martin Tabert. He was not a Floridian himself. In fact, he was a native of Munich, North Dakota. He was, however, in Florida in 1921 when he made a fatal mistake. He was passing through town and was arrested for apparently stealing a ride on a freight train. Apparently, he was on a train in Tallahassee without a ticket, and that was enough to bring him in. He was not sentenced to jail time. He was given 48 hours to pay the fine for stealing the ride. His family sent down $75 to pay for the $25 fine. The rest was to help get Martin home, but the money suspiciously never made it. Either it didn't make it to Martin or it was taken by someone involved in his arrest, particularly Sheriff James Robert Jones or by the jail itself. Sources differ on where the money went, but it didn't go to getting Martin out of his conviction. So Martin, who was arrested in Leon County, the county around Tallahassee, was unable to pay the fine, so he was sent to Dixie County, further south, just west of Gainesville along the Gulf of Mexico. Instead of seeing the inside of a jail cell, he was sent to work for a turpentine company, the Putnam Lumber Company. He was arrested on December 15, 1921. By February of 1922, just a few weeks later, Martin was dead. How did he get there? Why was he sent to this company in the first place? And what led to his death? Well, what you need to know is that Martin was not the first person to die inside of a turpentine camp. In fact, Martin was just the one who started to reveal how many people were dead. You see, the idea of sending a man convicted of a minor crime to pay for his deeds within the bounds of a turpentine camp was very common here in Florida. Across the state, quote, the local sheriff would be in league with owners of his county's largest lumber or turpentine companies who pay the defendants court fines, get them released from jail, and force them to pay off the fines by working in squalid, barbarous conditions in rural, isolated camps, end quote. Sometimes these guys would just be sent there as their sentence. Sometimes it would be them paying off their fines, or sometimes their punishment for committing a crime was being sent to these camps. Colloquially, folks would call this hard labor. If you've ever heard the phrase, that is what this is referring to. That's literally where this term comes from. Sometimes it's called punitive labor or penal labor. Summed up, that means that you serve out your conviction or, or pay off your fine through work. That is, if you could survive to paying it off. You see, there was no consequences for these camps, and no end in sight for them to be fully removed during this period in the early 20th century. You see, that's because of the depth of corruption surrounding these companies. The sheriff would often make money off of the prison labor that they'd send over to the lumber or turpentine companies, and no one was more egregiously involved in that practice than the man who arrested Martin Tabert, 
the sheriff of Leon County, James Robert Jones. He made $20 on every prisoner he sent to these companies. $20 at that time equated to over $300 per person. People would later describe Jones as, quote, little better than a slave catcher, end quote. Because Jones was making money off of every prisoner he sent to these labor camps, this made it more likely that the sheriff and other sheriffs in other parts of the state would arrest people for extraordinarily minor charges or even charges that the arresting officers would make up. More often than not, the men arrested in these cases were black Americans. Black Americans who were, quote, arrested on petty, often trumped up charges such as vagrancy or riding a freight train without paying a fare, end quote. The exact conviction that Martin faced was being on a train that he didn't pay a fare for. On top of that, some companies even had blood connections to the government. In the case of one infamous company called NAB Turpentine, NAB spelled K-N-A-B-B, one brother involved in the company, a brother who founded NAB Turpentine, was named Thomas Jefferson NAB, and he was literally in the state legislature. He was in the state government. So after the events of Martin Tabbert's death, NAB Turpentine would eventually be exposed as one of the most notoriously dangerous companies to do hard labor for. But that is a story for another day. It wasn't just the hard labor itself that was so difficult and so immoral in its acquisition of laborers, but also the punishments brought onto these laborers was beyond extreme. And in the case of Martin Tabbert, the punishment was deadly. Tabbert was 22 years old, working in the small town of Clara, Florida. He was ill with some disease. Sources differ. One source says malaria, another says pneumonia. Either way, this made the labor very difficult for him, if not impossible. And when he was unable to do the labor that was forced on him, Martin received an agonizing punishment. He was beaten with a leather strap. The man who did it was named Thomas Walter Higginbottom, and his job was literally as the chief whipping boss at this camp. That was literally his title, chief whipping boss. Reports from those who saw Martin beaten with the leather strap report that Martin was struck close to a hundred times. The brutality of his injuries led to his death three days later. The official report from the Putnam Lumber Company was that he died of a fever. Less than two months after a random charge was slapped on Martin, he was dead at the age of 22. He was not the first. Over the course of the next several months, investigations into what happened to Martin Tabbert would reveal some ugly truths about the way these camps had been run for some time. Martin's death sparked attention from everyone. The national media was soon involved, and that's because of one grim reason. Martin was white. Reports indicate that many black laborers had suffered and or died in these camps. The national media didn't bat an eye at their deaths, but because Martin was a white man who died in one of those camps, the alarm started to be raised that perhaps something untoward was happening in the labor camps of rural Florida. The governor of Florida at the time was a man named Cary Hardy, the namesake for Hardy County in southern central Florida. Hardy heard about what happened to Martin, but considered it to be a one-off situation, not part of a larger pattern. But with the attention brought on the death of Martin Tabbert, investigators started to realize how many turpentine companies were taking advantage of the practice of penal labor, including companies like NAB Turpentine, which of course had a founding member now in the legislature, and companies like the Putnam Lumber Company, where Martin worked. 
Now, how did these investigations even start in the first place? Well, the Tabbert family was very curious as to what happened to their son, Martin Tabbert. You see, when they learned Martin was dead, they found the circumstances surrounding his death to be very unusual. A family attorney began contacting parties involved. Quickly, Putnam Lumber Company, where Martin was, began blaming the sheriff, Sheriff Jones, and vice versa. The sheriff blamed the lumber company. Where did the money go that the Tabbert sent? Why was he in the labor camp at all? Every well wound up dry, until a man named Glenn Thompson came forward. He was there when Martin died, and he sent a letter to North Dakota in search of the Tabbert family. The postal service there in North Dakota got in touch with the Tabbert family, and they received his message. Glenn told them the truth, how Martin actually died. The Tabberts began to gather more accounts, more witnesses, more details about Martin's death. I'll spare you further details on what Martin was physically going through up to, during, and after the beating that led to his death, but a word that was used at the time was barbarous. The things that happened to Martin were barbarous. It's an appropriate description. The Tabberts pushed the North Dakota state attorney to investigate. He discovered the plot in which Sheriff Jones received $20 per laborer, and soon a committee was formed in the North Dakota state government. The state legislature of North Dakota wholly condemned the actions of those directly involved in Martin's death and condemned Sheriff Jones for his part in his death. The North Dakota state legislature was putting immediate and direct pressure on the Florida state legislature to do something about this situation to hold people accountable. As I mentioned, Governor Kerry Hardy denied the inhuman actions being accused. Nevertheless, an investigation into Martin's death was launched by the Florida state legislature. At the same time, a grand jury trial began accusing Higginbottom, the man who beat Martin to death, of murder. On April 22, 1923, the trial was over and Higginbottom was indicted for murder in the first degree. Soon after, the investigation against Sheriff Jones soon proved how much money he was making on prisoners. Quote, Jones had admitted that he had delivered 163 men to the labor company. He had netted at least $2,500 in a comparatively short time. End quote. That's about $38,000 in today's cash. That's how much Sheriff Jones made on prisoners. Based on my research, even though Higginbottom did have another trial, he never saw jail time or serious consequences. If he did, legal complications kept him from serious consequences, though he was convicted of second-degree murder. I'm not sure if he ever faced any actions against him for what he did. James Robert Jones, the sheriff of Leon County, was removed from office by the governor in 1923, as well as the judge involved in the scheme who allowed the sheriff to put all these men in these camps. The Tabbert family settled with the Putnam Lumber Company for a sum of $20,000, about $336,000 in today's cash. The national attention of this cross-nation legal conflict gained one newspaper called the New York World a Pulitzer Prize for their efforts in exposing the story. It also had resolutions here in Florida. It exposed the horrifying labor practices at camps run by the Nab brothers. Again, a story for another episode, but it led to legitimate change in our justice system. After all, the image of Florida was essential at this time to maintain our title as a tourist destination, an issue we have struggled with for a century and still struggle with now. So if we were to maintain people's interest in coming to Florida, we had to clean up our look. Governor Hardy and his government couldn't hold off any longer, and in May of 1923, the convict leasing practice that led to so many men working in these camps and dying in these camps was outlawed. Hard labor and corrupted deals between sheriffs and companies would no longer have any place in the state of Florida, at least legally speaking. As for Martin Tabbert, his body has never been found.
In the quiet golden grassland of the Mark Race Goldhead Branch State Park, the turpentine industry is an afterthought. Turpentine farming left Florida in 1970 over 50 years ago now. A blessing, perhaps, that we have forgotten those horrible days and the actions done by greedy men who thought retribution would never find them. But justice finds a way. For Martin Tabbert, however, that justice is incomplete. There is no justice for Martin, nor for the trees, the ones left scarred and marked by an industry that took away from the forest and from humanity alike. The only justice the trees have is that they're still standing, still growing, still living, and the men who ran these camps are all dead now, buried and forgotten, like the industry whose legacy has slowly faded away. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. I'm so glad I got to tell this story because I think it's one that more people need to hear. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me and it helps the show grow so more people can hear these stories and help find new stories about Florida that we would like to share. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear a specific type of story on this show, a topic you haven't heard discussed, anything like that, you can reach me on Instagram at WFMPod or Facebook at WFMPod or via email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I've included links in the episode description to more resources where you can learn even more about Martin Tabbert's story and what happened to him and the story of how the state government changed. I promise we're going to talk about this story a lot more. I'm very, very curious about the Nab brothers. I know we talked about it just a little bit during the episode, but there's so much more, especially after this event, that that have impacted them and changed a lot of what they did. So we're going to be talking about that probably some more this year or this time next year because it is a very, very interesting story. Thank you for listening. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, next week is our last spring break episode of March, and then we'll be back the week after that with some news stories. Maybe a story about an interesting pilot? I think that would be fun. But next week, we're going to be meeting up with an old friend, Dr. Lorraine Simpson. She is so much fun to talk to. I invited her back on the show to talk about whatever she wanted to talk about, and she wanted to talk about seagrass. So I went over to her place of work, a beautiful spot down in Stewart, Florida, and I cannot wait to tell you about it. Man, you are just... It is going to be so much fun. I I had such a great talk with Lorraine, and I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation. So that will be our episode next week. You are absolutely going to have a blast. Lorraine is so much fun to talk to. But until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water and go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. I will see you next Monday.